We are picking up on Whitfield and the Wesleys. So we were talking about Whitfield and John Wesley. He was the preacher, and his brother Charles was the hymn writer. Thousands of hymns he wrote. We sing a few. There's a few in our hymnal. We also looked at the great preacher Whitfield. I like Whitfield more than Wesley. Whitfield had better theology, and he didn't have some of the issues that we see here with Wesley. Let me open in prayer, and then we'll begin our class. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us the Bible, the Word. It is sufficient for all things. And Lord, it's a blessing to be able to look back and to see how people have proclaimed your Word, to see how you've used the Bible and preaching of the Bible to save sinners, how that started very early in our country's history, and how we wish sometimes, Lord, it was, it was like those early days where great preachers were found all throughout the colonies. But we do pray that there would be a revival in the churches of America today. That there would be a great awakening to the truth of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might have Whitfields and Spurgeons again, and even Wesleys in the Arminian churches. Even a Wesley preaching the gospel would be wonderful. And so we thank you for the gospel that goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at John Wesley. Wesley was the great preacher from England, as Whitfield was. They were both from England. They, they got saved. They were good friends in college at Oxford, and then they got saved. And so they started what's called the Methodist Movement. And the Methodist Movement was a subset of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church, by this point, was very structured, very formal. And the, the Wesleys and Whitfield thought, What we need is to actually live this stuff out. We need to experience true saving faith and true sanctification. And the Anglican church in the 1700s just very rote, very formal, very non-reformed in some ways. And so they began to preach, but the churches did not like these group of men. They did not like the Methodists. And the reason they didn't like them is because they were fiery. They were telling people they might not be saved. And so they had to go outside and preach because pulpits were closed to them. And it was the same in America. America had the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Congregational Churches. But the Anglicans closed their doors. And and some Congregational Churches, though, did open their doors to these men. And Whitfield especially drew large crowds, large crowds. And one time when he came back, we looked at how him and the Wesleys had a, a split over Calvinism. Wesley had been preaching very strongly against it, saying that it was basically a very evil doctrine. And so when Whitfield came back, people weren't coming to listen to him preach. He wondered why. And it turns out that John had been preaching strongly against Whitfield's doctrine. They remained friends. John Wesley preached at Whitfield's funeral. But I read to you some of the letters that Whitfield wrote. For, Christ, for Jesus Christ's sake, consider how you dishonor God by denying election. And very strong letters that he would write. That's how friends spoke to one another back then. They weren't scared to encourage one another and exhort one another in the scriptures. Even if it made people mad. They got over it. Today, you know, you make somebody mad and you might have lost a friend for life. Well, let's now come to John Wesley's perfectionism. John Wesley believed that a Christian could live a perfect, sinless life. It was possible, he taught. Historian Michael Haken says, For all the good that John Wesley did, He was a lightning rod for controversy. His propagation of evangelical Arminianism, for example, did much to antagonize Whitfield and other key evangelical leaders. So at this point, most of Christianity in Europe and America is mostly Calvinistic. Even if people wouldn't use the term, even if they wouldn't agree to everything John Calvin said, it was in general Calvinistic. Even the Anglican Church on paper was Reformed Calvinistic. 
The problem is that when it comes to preaching to large crowds, it's hard to convince people to be saved. And so Wesley talked a lot about free will, and he emphasized the Arminian doctrine, whereas Whitfield was emphasizing you must be born again, and that those whom that God has chosen would be born again once they heard the gospel and believed, of course. And so you have Arminianism quite different than that. And then preaching will sound different, even though sometimes we think it sounds all the same. It is quite different. And we'll talk about that as we go over the next few weeks. It especially becomes different in America. Uh, equally serious of an error with Wesley was his commitment to the doctrine of Christian perfection. Convinced that scripture taught this doctrine, though, West, John Wesley was determined to publish it to the world. Yet unlike his clear presentation of the heart of the gospel, his teaching about perfection is somewhat murky and at times difficult to pin down. It's, it's really unbiblical the way he has to go about doing it. Because in those days, you couldn't just get up and say what you wanted. People would check your doctrine. People would check you against the Bible. Even somebody in a large Anglican audience might do that. So Wesley had to work really hard to prove some of these doctrines. And for example, like his, his doctrine that Christ died for every single person and that every person's sin had been paid for. And then somebody might ask him, well, how does a person come to Christ, though? If election's not true and Christ died for everybody, how does a person come to Christ? Because we're all sinners by nature. And he said, well, the cross made us neutral. Even though we have a sin nature, when Christ died on the cross, it neutralized that effect, essentially. And we can now make free will choices, even as an unbelieving pagan, to come to Christ. And he couldn't find that in scripture other than the cross would be lifted up for all men to see. And that was the best he could do. He called that prevenient grace. It's not saving grace. It's not common grace. He said that's prevenient grace where Christ's death kind of just made it all neutral. Everybody can choose to come to him now. And total depravity or sin nature doesn't affect the person before they're saved when it comes to choosing Christ. Well, another issue is this perfectionism. Here's the historian Michael Haken again. He always contended that he was not advocating sinless perfection. So he would say one thing. I'm not saying you have to be perfect without sin. Yet he could talk about a person who experienced this blessing as having sin separated from his soul. So he would use other phrases like that. Having a full deliverance from sin. Such perfection freed the person from evil thoughts and evil tempers. As he wrote to the Baptist and Dutton. This blessing brings freedom from, he says, all faintness, coldness, unevenness of love, both towards God and our neighbor. And hence from the wondering of heart and duty and from every emotion and affection that is contrary to the law of love. So he would never use that phrase, but he would say it's possible to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not be in a state of, of sin as a Christian. All this sounds very much like sinless perfection, despite Wesley's protest. Haken continues, he says, we, Wesley says, we do not say that we have no sin in us, but that we do not commit sin. It's the same thing, right? We do not commit sin. So he, he, he would try to say, look, we're born in sin. We have a sin nature, but when we're saved, we don't commit sin. There is a potential for that. There is a possibility. Now, supposedly he never claimed that himself. He said, look, I'm not that, but that's the goal I'm striving for. And it is possible in the Christian life. He said, so it is curious that Wesley himself never claimed to have experienced what he sometimes called the second blessing. Remember that phrase that that gets carried now into a lot of different areas, not just in Methodism, but it'll also continue into 
the charismatic movement, the second blessing. This is where the charismatics get this phrase from. It's from Wesley. He said, it's a second blessing, a teaching that carried enormous weight in the century after his death in 1791. It formed the heart and substance of the transatlantic holiness movement. So that's the next movement after Wesley. Well, they'll take this further. They call the holiness movement. And that if you're not living a sinless life, it's because you haven't given it all to Christ. And there's churches in this area that preach this. Their come to Jesus end of message call isn't necessarily come and be saved. But if you're a Christian and you're struggling and you're in sin and you're not victorious and you're not living the holy life like you should, you need to give it all to Jesus. It means you haven't given it all up. That's the holiness movement. We'll probably talk about that next week or the next. Wesleyan perfectionism prepared the soil for the emergence of Pentecostalism in this century. So this is Haken speaking. It's not even doubted that Pentecostals come out of the holiness movement, which comes out of the Methodist movement. Wesley designated a successor, John Fletcher, who would refer to this second blessing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So now he's taken a term from Scripture called baptism of the Holy Spirit and saying, here's what it actually is. It's when you're a Christian living for a time, and then you get to this point where you're no longer committing sin. Thus, within the Wesleyan holiness movement, the baptism of the Holy Spirit became connected to a post-conversion crisis experience. This is completely different, I think, from the, from the biblical teaching obviously, what's called reform sanctification model, which is that your life might look like this, but you're, you're going up, like the stock market, right? Sometimes you have a big crash, but then you come back up. It's always going up over time, or so far anyway in history. Well, that's the Christian life. They would say this, this movement, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Wesleyan holiness movement, is going to say that you can become a Christian and be sort of flatlined for a while, or maybe a little up and down, and then you get up on this plateau that's called sinless perfection and you live up there and then you drop down when you sin and then you can get up there again and be sinless for a while and I used to think this is not possible no one actually teaches this today but as I'm preaching through books of the Bible like first John I would get a Methodist commentator and I would read that and he would say yes you can be sinless until you sin and then there's another period where you can be sinless and until you sin and so it's, it kind of sounds like word games to me. Obviously, between sins, we're not sinning. But we're still sinning at some point. So you can't live a perfect life as a Christian. The idea of rededicating. Some of that is is term that people would use when they backslidden. And that would probably be the right term to use. Like I've had it maybe years. person might say I've had years of backsliding in the faith and not growing. And so I recommitted. In other words, the Lord woke you up. Now, sometimes that means they were actually saved. They thought they were saved because they grew up in a Christian home, went to church, got baptized. Turns out later they were actually saved. So a lot of times that'll just be about asking the person what they mean and getting into their testimony a bit. Later leaders, like Charles Finney, that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks in the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney would associate the baptism of the Spirit with ecstatic experiences and unutterable gushings of praise. And so you, you see where an idea that's not in the Bible that Wesley talked about gets worked out in the next generation as something a little bit different and a little bit different in the next generation and a bit different in the next generation. And they keep modifying this to our modern second blessing baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. 
All this paved the way for Pentecostal association of tongues with the baptism of the Spirit and entrance into a deeper form of the Christian life. Let's talk about Wesley's later ministry. Just for a timeline, the next person we're going to talk about is Jonathan Edwards. And so we have 1741, Edwards is now preaching the sinners in the hands of an angry God. 1742, you may have heard of Handel's Messiah. That's performed. 1743, Wesley publishes an earnest appeal to men of reason and religion, a defense of Methodism. So he's defending why they believe what they believe about practicing the faith. Whitfield helps establish, when he breaks off from Wesley, he starts his own movement called the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist, which today sounds very funny to us because Methodists are Arminian and Calvinists is the opposite. But originally, Methodism was not associated with Arminianism. Methodism was the way of practicing and experiencing the Christian life. So you have men like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was very Calvinistic, but came out of the Calvinist, Welsh Calvinistic Methodist group. In 1748, Lady Huntington appoints Whitfield. Her chaplain supports him financially. Whitfield ministers throughout various parts of Britain. So we're just getting near the end of, of Whitfield's life as we've been talking about these men. Here's some paintings of Wesley throughout his life. It's said that even in his very old age, he was still preaching. And he would often study the Bible and then preach outdoors, even in old age. So in his later ministry, he, when Charles Wesley breaks up his relationship with a woman, Grace Mary, here's uh, what was said about that. J.B. Wakeley writes, John Wesley felt the disappointment most keenly. So Wesley, we've already talked about Sophie Hopke, who he was wanting to marry but never asked her, and then got mad that she married someone else and refused her communion. And that's why he had to leave Georgia, the colony, and go back to England. Well, later he meets Grace Murray and wants to marry her, and his brother breaks it up, says it's not good for his ministry. John Wesley felt the disappointment most keenly. He poured out the sorrows of his heart, not only in prose, but in verse. In one of his letters, he says, the sons of Zeruah were too strong for me. This is what David says about Joab and the sons of Zeruah, his sister. The whole world fought against me, but above all, my own familiar friend, talking about his brother, then was fulfilled, Son of man, behold, I take from thee the desire of thine eyes at a stroke. Yet shall not thou lament, neither shall thy tears run. This is what God tells Ezekiel when Ezekiel's wife is going to be taken from him. The fatal irrevocable stroke was struck on Thursday last. Yesterday I saw my friend that was, and him to whom she is sacrificed. I don't know if he's talking about how she went, went with one of his friends to get married or, or how that happened. But he's, very, he's got a troubling, troubling relationship with women. Let's put it that way. So 1749, he publishes his, his writings on what the Methodist movement is about. In 1751, though, he marries Mary Vazell. She was seven years younger than, she, than he was. She was a widow with four children. Their marriage was not a happy one. And ended in her leaving him. She was apparently short-tempered and jealous of his interaction with other women especially female housekeepers. She also read some of the letters that he wrote to some women that he had met in ministry. And those letters could be read either way that you wanted to take them. In 1755, John and Mary Vazell, whom he married in 1751, separated. So here's what's interesting about Wesley is he wouldn't actually be biblically qualified as an elder in churches today. And he wasn't in those days. He was a traveling preacher. And so was Whitfield. But we see with Wesley's perfectionism and then his marriage struggles, 
that there's some major red flags here. Here's Mary Vizel as a young girl or middle-aged person. And then the black and white drawing there. So let's talk a little bit about that relationship. When Wes, This is something you're not likely to hear. Unless you read a biography on Wesley, you're not probably going to hear some of these things. When he left for ministry on a tour in Ireland, Molly reported that her, she was called, yeah, Molly Vizel. She reported that her husband, Molly or Mary, either way, that her husband's parting words to her were, I hope I shall see your wicked face no more. Reunited in England, they clashed violently. Wesley refusing to change his writing habits of sending affectionate letters to other women, and Molly accusing him of adultery and calling down on him, in her own words, all the curses from Genesis to Revelation. Almost the sole surviving record of this marriage from Molly's side dates from 1760, when she said Wesley left the meeting early with one Betty DeSin and was seen still with her the following morning. Now, we don't know if this is true, if she's just mad at him, if she's putting the wrong things together, but this is what she says. She told him in a loving manner to desist from running after strange women, for your character is at stake. In 1771, Molly announced that she was leaving John again on the 23rd of January. The journal reports, For what I cause, I know not to this day. My wife set out for Newcastle, proposing never to return. I did not leave her. I did not send her away. I will not call her back. And so this is from a biography recently written, more recently written about Wesley. And it takes the journals of the two people here and, and puts in some of their entries. In later ministry, we can kind of see a timeline here. Mozart's born in 1756. George Whitfield's seventh and final trip to the colonies in 1690 and 70. Now, this is right before the American Revolution. And this great awakening is happening in America. He arrives in Charleston and preaches for 10 days to large congregations. In May of 1770, he begins a tour of Philadelphia. But on September 29th in New Hampshire, he preaches his final sermon and he dies the following morning. And he, I think he was scheduled to preach that day. And he dies. Some 6,000 people gathered for the funeral, which John Wesley came over the Atlantic and preached at his funeral. So what about Whitfield's legacy? Well, he preached more than 18,000 formal sermons. That's a lot. He may not. If a, if a man preaches one time on a Sunday for a year, that's 52 without vacation. If he does it twice, you're talking 100 maybe. 18,000 is a lot. This is 10 days in a row with maybe a break after that. And that's not even counting some of the informal settings when he was asked to come to somebody's house and speak to a group. In addition to his work in America and England, he made 15 journeys to Scotland, two to Ireland, one each to Bermuda, Gibraltar, and the Netherlands. Haken says, actually, if one includes all the talks that, that Whitfield gave, he probably spoke about 1,000 times per year during his ministry. That's multiple times a day. Moreover, many of his sermons were delivered to massive congregations that numbered 10,000 or so, some to audiences possibly as large as 20,000. He's considered to be one of the fathers of evangelicalism. So when we talk about evangelicalism in America, that's particularly an American movement, not the political evangelicalism. That's, that's what liberals used to say, you know, the evangelicals got Trump elected. I'm sure evangelicals voted for, for Trump, but the The idea here is evangelicalism is those who preach the gospel and they expect people to live out what they believe. And so this really gets hold in America and and Whitfield is the father of that. He's the one who says you must be born again. And he says, if you're a Christian, you must live out the commands of Christ. He's the best known preacher in England and America in the 18th century. And because he traveled through all the American colonies to great crowds, media coverage, 
He's one of the most widely recognized public figures in America before George Washington. Before Washington, sort of the, the winner of the Revolutionary War, the winning general, Whitfield is the most famous. The newspapers were all writing about him. He's the one you wanted to go see. He's the one that you wanted to hear preach. He's buried underneath the church that he preached in the night before he died. Old South Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. He's buried underneath the pulpit. And I used to think, well, they just dug a hole under the pulpit, which they sometimes did. But this floor is wooden, so that would be kind of strange. There's actually a vault underneath here that you can go to. And supposedly uh, the revolutionaries opened it up six years later in 1776. And they saw was a thumb or something, and the rest had turned to dust. There's, there's a, an account of that, how some of these men got together in Newburyport and went to, to pray at Whitfield's tomb. You can go there today and see it, by the way. And uh, I think the church is, yeah, it's liberal today. It's a liberal Presbyterian church. All of these great churches that started in America are liberal today. Later ministry for Wesley. American Revolution begins in 1775. He didn't want that to happen. In 1771, Francis Asbury sells to America. So this was one of the protégés of Wesley. Asbury's going to come to America and he's going to ride on a horse and go on a circuit. And he's what's called a circuit rider. Because the churches didn't have a Methodist preacher. And when the denomination Methodists start, they have to rotate around preachers. And they still do that today. Little churches in little towns, not big enough to pay a, a preacher. They'll have a man or a woman today circle around and preach at these places. Methodists in America number about 5,000 in 1776. So not a large number. I mean, this is a small percentage of the population. Mostly Presbyterian, Congregational. This is the, the Puritan Congregational and the uh, Anglican. And then there's a few Baptists. Uh, Charles' brother dies in 1788. John dies in 1791. Today there's 70 million Methodist adherents worldwide. Many of them do not even agree with most of the conservative gospel that Wesley preached, especially the American branch. They're always talking about splitting off from the African branch because the African doesn't like gay marriage and thinks it's against scripture. And the American Methodist movement's always pushing gay marriage. And so every time they meet, I think it's every couple of years, they're always threatening to break apart. Three books that I recommend that if you wanted to pick up and learn more. George Whitfield, the shorter biography by Arnold Dallimore. Dallimore has two big volumes. And if you just really love Whitfield, then you got to read the two big volumes. Steve Lawson said that's one of his favorite biographies he's ever read. But Dallimore also put these together in a shorter one-volume biography. Then there's this little book by Steve Lawson, The Evangelistic Zeal of George Whitfield. Great, these long line of godly men series. It's a great series to get to know these preachers, what they preached, who they were. And for the kids, The Man Who Preached Outside. That's about George Whitfield. I think it's a little board book, right? And they just are looking at the pictures with some writing. It's good to teach children who these men were at a, at a young age. You know, they learn secular history, but church history is important too. And uh, it's good to start teaching them who these men were because they probably won't read about it in most history books. The, the Puritans came over to America, but what did they believe? Who were they being persecuted by? What was their beliefs? Who was Whitfield? Who was Edwards? All right, any uh, questions on Whitfield? I think so. I mean, a lot of people... He inherited a plantation in Georgia that had slaves. So a lot of, and it's going to be the same with Edwards. This is a time when people had slaves. And so a lot of folks will say, 
We shouldn't look to any of these men because they were slave owners. But other than that, yeah, there's no big sin that we know of with Whitfield. He was never married, and he, he didn't quite have the... I left out a whole account of Wesley plagiarizing, and he wrote an account against Augustus Toplady, the hymn writer, who was very Calvinistic. And it's pretty much assured that he wrote this little pamphlet that was supposed to be for Calvinism, but it said all kinds of heretical things, like God is going to... Today, people will say, well, Calvinists believe God kills all the babies and sends them straight to heaven or something because they're elect. It was stuff like that in the 1700s, but even more harsh. And it was probably written by Wesley, but Wesley put Top Lady's name on there just so everybody would not listen to Top Lady's music and put it in their hymnals. So he had a lot of scandals like that in his life. We don't know of anybody Whitfield. And the, even the... the plantation. He didn't live there and work there. He just, somebody gave it to him and said, here, put your orphanage here. So he did for a while, and then it basically went bankrupt, and I think he got rid of it or sold it. All right, let's talk about my favorite man of the First Great Awakening. So you have the Wesleys. They came some to America. Whitfield was the primary preacher, and the other one in America is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. So here's the idea of what the colonies look like. Not all of what we're used to today in the United States the English only had the East Coast there, down to the Carolinas and Georgia. Spain had all the green, and then the English had was today Canada. So here's some of the spots we're going to look at in the life of Edwards. Uh, he's born there in East Windsor. Most of these things in his life take place in Connecticut. He will go up to Stockbridge and Northampton and spend some time in ministry there. Early on in his life, though, he's at East Windsor, he's at New Haven, and he'll end his life down in New Jersey at Princeton. Here's the house, the drawing of the house he was born in. I think some of these drawings come from a book that Princeton put together after Edwards died, if I have that right. And so they went to these spots and had an artist pencil them out. Because it says President Jonathan Edwards, and he was only ever the president at Princeton College before his death. So there's his college that he's going to go to, Yale. That's, that's what a church would look like on your left there. And then the school was right next to it. This is a letter that Edwards wrote. I think I've got some of these out of order, but you may see them again later. This is a letter that Edwards wrote when he was 20 years old to the, uh, the Royal Society of London, which is a scientific society that was trying to make scientific achievements in the 1700s, 1800s. And what he did here is he was such a, a polymath. A polymath is somebody who's an expert in many subjects. Theology, philosophy, science. He studied the spider and drew out all these figures of how a spider spins its web. And that's what the drawings are in the middle. And then he put figure numbers on there. And around this figure, he wrote what he had discovered and sent that off, hoping to be published in their journal. He wasn't, but this was 20 years old. He's writing to the science society there in London. Remember, there are, all these people are still British. We're not past 1776. So Edwards saw himself as a British American. So I think I missed the slide on his early life, didn't I? So he's born in East Windsor. He had 10 sisters. Feel bad for him, 10 sisters. He was the only boy in his family. And uh, he's schooled at home by his mom and dad. And his dad was a preacher, Reverend Timothy Edwards. He goes to Yale at 13. And so it's common to go to college a little sooner than we do today. 
But 13 is still pretty young. He's very smart, very intelligent. And he uses that for the, for the glory of God. He had a crisis during his last year of college. He had a very violent illness. He was 16 years old. His last year of college, he was 16. Promised to mend his ways, though he would embark on several years of spiritual struggle. He came to view God's sovereignty as a lovely doctrine rather than a hateful one. This was an intellectual breakthrough that changed his life. In 22 and 23, he wrote up 70 resolutions that he wanted to keep. And these resolutions are very famous. You need to look at these every January 1st when you're doing your resolutions. He's not clear on if he was converted. Probably converted in this time frame here from 16 to, to 20 over all of this struggle. And it's hard a lot of times when you're baptized as an infant and you grow up in the church being called a believer. You think of yourself as a believer. I would, and many people would mark his conversion at around this time here. So let's look at his resolutions. They'll be worth reading through. And that's one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to read these men, not, not just learn about them, but pick one or two that you're interested in, or maybe if you have more time, pick a book, a one book out of the ones I suggest, and learn more about these men and read their own writings. Yes, it's challenging, but you get used to it after a while. So he's in New Haven, where Yale is. By the way, Yale was started because Harvard got too liberal. Harvard was started to train pastors in America. Harvard went liberal. So by the 1700s, Yale is started. Guess what's going to happen to Yale? It's going to go liberal. In fact, it's the most liberal Ivy League school today. Then they're going to start Princeton. Guess what's going to happen to Princeton? It's going to go liberal. Then they're going to start Westminster Seminary in the early 1900s. Anyway, back to Edwards here. 21 resolutions. And here's, how, here's the preamble. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. That was his note there. The hard thing about Edwards isn't so much the, the words the, and, the, and the spelling is very similar to ours. It's that at this time and up until the 1900s, people wrote a long sentence with lots of ideas in the sentence. Lots of commas. And then we go to school and we're taught not to do that. That's a long run-on sentence. And so the problem is we can't go back and read these men sometimes because their sentences are so long. But you can get used to it the more you read them. So here's number one, and it's quite long. The first resolution, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure and the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never, so many myriads of ages hence. Let's just stop there. Look, he's saying whatever's most going to glorify God and he doesn't leave himself out. See, that's the problem. Uh, John Piper is reading this and he realizes, look, the problem we have today is we think, oh, Christianity's all doom and gloom and obeying stuff and living under the law and all of this. And Piper, you know, desiring God ministry is born out of him reading Jonathan Edwards because Edwards says stuff like this, and my own good profit and pleasure. There's nothing wrong with being pleased in the Lord. There's nothing wrong with having blessings from the Lord. But that has to be under the main purpose, which is to glorify God. Moving on, he says, Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. That's a huge resolution right there. The rest are a little bit shorter. Resolve to be continually endeavoring, continually endeavoring to find out some new contrivance or invention 
to promote the aforementioned things. What he's saying is, I'm going to seek every day to glorify God. And I'm always going to work harder at figuring out ways I can do that in my life. He's not just going to say, well, I'm going to read my Bible and pray. 15 minutes, check, check. Time to go to work. Throughout his day, throughout his life, he's going to look for new ways to glorify God. Resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to be to the glory of God. Nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. So he's saying, I never want to do anything that would displease God or lessen the ascribed glory that we're to give him. Resolved never to lose one moment of time. He preached a whole sermon on the, the Ephesians passage on time, redeeming the time. Never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. How much time do we waste today? We think, well, how did they get all this stuff done back then? They had no computers. And Calvin, you know, is pumping out books like crazy. And Martin Luther and the Puritans and, and all of these women writing poetry in early America. And how did they get all that done? Well, they didn't have all the distractions. Now, they had distractions, but it wasn't as easy. They couldn't just watch a show or look at their phone all day. And he's saying, I need to redeem the time. Six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Think about that. He says, I, if it's the last hour of your life, you don't want to go and commit sin. You know you're about to die. You have one hour to live. And you're a Christian. What are you going to do? You're not going to go out and commit sin. So he says, now we ought to have that attitude our whole life. Because we never know when we might die. We never know when our last hour is. And this helps us to glorify God. Because if we never do anything which I would be afraid to do in the last hour of my life, then we're living a holy life. Resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. He's saying, I don't want to sin I don't want to speak ill of others. And when they sin, I don't want to think bad of them. I want to let that shame me for all the times that I've sinned and let that improve my sanctification. Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and on the common circumstances which attend to death. We don't think of death enough. Read Ecclesiastes. The whole book is about preparing for death. Ten, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. How many people died for the faith? How many are burning in hell forever? That's real pain. Resolve when I think of any theorem in divinity, any theological thought that needs to be solved, immediately to do what I can towards solving it if circumstances do not hinder. Well, this might be the hardest one I've found in the whole list. I mean, he's saying, I'm reading my Bible. I'm stopped. I got a question. I'm going to spend the rest of the day trying to figure out the answer. I've tried to do this in sermon preparation. It really throws you off because you're thinking about a sermon. You're working on that. If you chase down every thought, every question, I'm not sure how he worked this out in his life, but he did study for 13 hours a day and he would go for walks in the woods and that's about it. His wife took care of the household and they had 12 or 13 children. 12, resolved, if I take delight in it as a gratification of pride 
or vanity or any such account, immediately throw it by. Resolve to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. So he's really talking about doing good deeds for others. Resolve never to do anything out of revenge. Resolve never to suffer the least motions of anger towards irrational beings. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone, so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account, except for some real good. Resolve that I will live so, as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Again, he's coming back to this idea of thinking about death. Resolve to live so at all times, as I think it best in my devout frames, and when I have clearest notions of things of the gospel and another world. So you don't think about how you need to live and and live a godly life when you're in the middle of sin and sinful thoughts. You do it when you're in your best devout frames, when you're in the word, when you're in prayer. 19. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do. If I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. So again, one hour before I die, he's repeating this same one that he wrote earlier in his life. Resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. He was very strict with his diet. Nothing He wouldn't eat anything that upset his stomach, especially if he was going to preach the next day. And the morning that he was going to preach, he did not even eat hardly anything. He didn't want to have a full stomach in the pulpit. He didn't want to have anything that might upset him or distract him. I would starve if I did that and like fall over here if I didn't eat breakfast, but he was strict like that. Resolved never to do anything which I should see in another. I should count a just occasion to despise him for or to think in any way the more meanly of him. So if he observes sin in someone else, he's resolved not to do that sin in his own life. Here's a historical evangelical scholar, George Marsden, who writes a lot on the history of Edwards. He says, it was one thing to make such a thorough and impressive list of resolutions. We just read the first 21. There's 70. It was another, Marsden says, to actually keep them. This we know from his diary in which he reported his efforts fairly regularly for the next year or two. Although he noted the spiritual highs that he later recalled, his diary also records many days of lows decays, and lengthy times of inability to focus on spiritual things. What you see in a, in a life like this and these men who wrote these diaries is they're struggling in their thought life and in their heart. And that's where the struggle has to be. If you don't struggle there, then you end up struggling in your actual outward life. And that's when you commit sins. And he's saying that he's struggling in his heart, in his mind. And people who wrote diaries, especially the Puritans like this. I I consider him pretty much a Puritan. He's technically outside the time frame. But you see this struggle in their heart of of fighting a good fight. His early ministry, he serves in 20, after he gets out of college, very young, 18 years old, he's going to be pulpit supply. So he spends some time in New York. He spends some time in Connecticut. Later in 24 to 26, he goes to be a tutor there at Yale. And he gets a reputation for loyalty to the school and its doctrine, which is very orthodox at the time. By the way, there's a Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale. Probably the best thing about it today is they preserved all of his stuff. And they digitized it, and it's all online. They produced 22 volumes of his works. And there's a whole scholarly establishment at the Jonathan Edwards Center there. On February 15, 1727, he's ordained as an assistant to his grandfather. We've already talked about Solomon Stoddard. In Northampton, Massachusetts. That same year, he married Sarah Pierpoint. And then his father dies in 1729. He's going to take over the church there. Or they're going to ask him to come be the the pastor there. Remember Solomon Stoddard Stoddard came up with the halfway covenant? Okay, you're born in the church, but you say you're an unbeliever. You don't don't follow 
the commands of Christ, but you come to church on Sundays. What are we going to do? This is causing tension. Well, I tell you what, as long as you check off that you agree to our doctrine, this is what Solomon said, as long as you check off the doctrine and you don't disobey outwardly any major rule of the church, then you can be a half member. You can take communion, even though you're not a believer and you don't profess to be a believer and you live like an unbeliever. So that's called the halfway covenant. And this is what comes after the second and third generations after the Puritans. So there is one of the places that he goes to. This is New York. Before it was New York, it was New Amsterdam. And when the English took over, they changed it to New York for the Duke of York. They gave him the honor of naming it after him. But before that, it was settled by the Dutch. This is in the 1600s. This is the closest drawing painting that I could find to Jonathan Edwards, 1776. You can see here the soldiers marching through the streets, the snowy streets of New York. That's generally what it looked like. So he's an 18-year-old, 18 to 20, and he's preaching in big churches in New York, writing these resolutions, doing his spider studies and sending them off to London. Here's his wife, an early picture, Sarah Pierpont. Here's, here's some knowledge about Sarah that's interesting. Edwards wrote about her when he first met her. They say there's a young lady in New Haven who is loved of that great being talking about God, who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being, in some way or other, invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him, that she expects after a while to be received up where he he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affection and most just and conscientious in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world lest she would offend this great being. She is of wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after the great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place, singing sweetly, and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. This is what a love letter looked like. I don't think he wrote it to her. I think he's talking about her to someone else, but... Who's going to write this language today, right? There's some young women in here who would enjoy that. But he's talking about her love for the Lord. Not her looks, not, you know, his desire for her. He's talking, first of all, about her love for the Lord. Here they are a little bit later in life. Men are wearing wigs. You already saw that with Whitfield and Wesley. This is the time of the wigs. They have these white, nice wigs. I don't know what he looked like without the wig, but bald. I don't think he was bald. Ministry in Northampton. So his grandfather dies and they say hey the grandson's been around here and preached let's have him so he begins to preach there after he's called to be their pastor and he starts off by preaching against arminianism which is now coming over from england starting to make its way into the churches that had not been that way for a hundred years the puritans had come over and preached god's election they had preached god's sovereignty and total depravity of man and so his title was god glorified in man's dependence 
Defending divine sovereignty is what that sermon was all about. In 1733, so he's there, two years, revival breaks out in Northampton. Revival, we'll talk more about this, but revival is a time when suddenly people in the church are being saved. And it's, sometimes it's hard for us to think about, but when you're when everybody is born into the church and baptized into the church and calls himself a Christian, you have cultural Christianity and they're attending churches like regular early on in the Puritan days. You had to by law. You had to go to church. I don't think by this time you, you absolutely had to or you would be punished. But people are going. It is the thing to do. And they're being saved. And a lot of people are getting saved in Edwards Church. Several hundred were converted that year and added to the church through Edwards preaching. This revival then spreads and he's asked to preach around other churches. Whitfield comes over and adds to it. So this is the great awakening because people wake up to the fact that they're not saved and they are saved through the preaching of the gospel. During this time, he meets Whitfield. In 1741, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, people sometimes say, well, he just stood up there and read it and he did have a full manuscript and he didn't move around like a lot of people do today. He certainly didn't have a stool with a, with a coffee cup and just kind of sitting on the stool. He had a pulpit. He stood in the pulpit and he used his voice. And if you've ever heard men like John MacArthur, they don't have to move around. They don't even have to get loud. The emphasis on words, the words that they use, the doctrine that they preach can be very impactful on the, on the ears, on the mind, on the heart. And I don't think he just read it up there like he was sleeping. I think he stood still because that's what everybody did. I think he read from a full manuscript because we have them today. But he had to read that with real passion. And you can't read sinners in the hands of an angry God and not see the passion there. We're going to look at it in a minute. Here's the real title. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, a sermon preached at Enfield, July 8, 1741, at a time of great awakenings and attended with remarkable impressions on many of the hearers by Jonathan Edwards, A.M., pastor of the Church of Christ in Northampton. And then he gives the text, Amos 9, 2 and 3. This is a short title. The sermon had a short title. Books at this time, had very long titles. So let's summarize Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and we'll, we'll probably spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this sermon. He really took Deuteronomy 32, 28 and Psalm 73. Both of those passages speak of this, um, how God holds you up, and at any time your foot can slip. Your foot may slip. Right now you're walking steady throughout life, and at any moment, your foot would slip and you would go down into the fires of hell. So these are some points to summarize it. And then I want to read you some quotes. There's no one of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. There's nothing lacking in God. He could choose to throw all wicked men into hell at any moment. They deserve to be cast into hell, he says, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God using his power at any moment to destroy them. Sometimes we think, well, you know, God's just there for us, and he's waiting for all the unbelievers. Well, he is, biblically speaking, waiting for the elect. But nobody knows if they're elect or not until they're saved. And so he's, what Edwards is saying is at any point, an unbeliever could be taken out of this life and sent to hell. They're already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. That's something we've been all looking at in Romans 1 and 2. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own. At what moment God shall permit him. 
They are in the souls of wicked men, those hellish principles reigning. Talking about desire for sin. That would presently kindle and flame out into hellfire if it were not for God's restraints. The only reason, he says, that you as an unbeliever that's not following Christ, you're still alive and not flaming in hell is because God has restrained that. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. Natural men's, natural men's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them do not secure them a moment. We think we're doing all these things to better our life and make it longer, but in the end, God is sovereign over all those. All wicked men's pains and contrivance they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, they don't secure them from hell for one moment. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. He's only promised to save those who are with Christ, the spiritual man, not the natural man. But how many of those outside of Christ think that they have a right to exist? And Edwards is reminding them God is sovereign. God determines that and when somebody will go to hell. So here's a couple of long quotes, but you need to get the sense of this. And and by the way, I won't do it justice. You need to go listen to Max McLean. He has uh, the whole sermon. This is the guy who read through the Bible, and he recently did the C.S. Lewis movie. Uh, A great voice. He's an actor. And he does the sinners in the hands of an angry God. I think you can get it for free online still. Just type it in. Max McLean, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Listen to it later. He does a much better job than I will. And probably still doesn't even touch what, what Edwards did. So listen to this. That God, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. People read this. They used to read it in high school and got really mad at, at Edwards. And I didn't read it in high school. I think it's not done anymore. Let's continue here. By the way, he's not only preaching hellfire and judgment all the time, but this is his most famous one. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you was suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. We need more people to preach like that, right? That's just one paragraph. Yea, there is nothing else that is, give, that is to be given as a reason why you did do not this very moment drop into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incense as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, 
Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. I mean, if you're an unbeliever that's been going to church your whole life and you sitting in church and you hear that, no wonder revival broke out and people were saved. Another paragraph. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain lest you be consumed. I remember when I was going to preach my first sermon, I think it was. I printed this off and tried to preach it to my family just to get some practice. And I just will always remember that, that spider. You know, he studied spiders and he drew it out. And he gives you this image that God has a thread connected to us and he's holding us up. But at any moment, at any moment, in fact, the flames are already right there, right underneath us. At any moment, he could just say, that's it. Cut that life. Spider falls into the fire. That's every unbeliever. And so he did come around at the end, and like I read here, and tell people to come to Christ. Edward's preaching also focused on heaven and love, not just fire and brimstone. Preachers ought to preach the Bible, and the Bible says both. You will be judged in your sin. Trust in Christ. And he preached all of those things. In fact, I probably am more familiar with the ones that he preaches on love, like the, the end for which God created the world. And there's another one. I can't remember the title of it. It has to do with love. Great Awakening was met with resistance from the conservative congregationalists. The old guard did not like all of this newfangled preaching. People were getting emotional. They were weeping. People were falling on the floor. Some women were shouting out and then passing out from that, that kind of preaching. It was convicting them. So Edwards had to defend it because they said, look, this is some new liberal type of preaching, so progressive. And he says, no, this is biblical. So he writes a defense of it, noting that the emotions were not the test of its legitimacy. This is the problem we have today. People think, oh, everybody's emotional and they're falling over. That must mean something's happening. He says, no, if stuff like that happens, that's one thing, but that does not prove that it's legitimate. Rather, it's the change in their lifestyle and in their behavior. It's not what they do on Sunday morning necessarily, but it's how you see them change and act different because of what God has done in their heart. This led to his preaching on the religious affections. He turns that into a book in 42 through 43 in which he detailed what are the distinguishing marks of true conversion. So here's his house in Northampton, a drawing of that little house right outside of town there. That's what his church would have looked like in the drawing. I'll put another church beside it there today. If you drive through the New England area, you'll see lots of these old congregational churches. These are Puritans who left the Anglican church and they thought the congregation itself should be the determiner of doctrine and not submit to the Anglican hierarchy. And they did have pastors and elders. Not congregational like we think today. All these churches have gone liberal. It's sad. I remember being in Boston driving through and you come up this hill and there's this massive, white, beautiful church. It looks just like one that Jonathan Edwards would have preached in. And it says, 
you know, Boston Community Center. It's not even a church anymore. They, uh, this one burned down, so they rebuilt one in the 1800s. And they even have a plaque there, one of their famous preachers in that church. Today it has a woman pastor there. It's a combined United Church of Christ and a First Baptist Church in Northampton. They have a woman preacher, and they are very affirming of the gay lifestyle. But they still have that. You can go see. This is a painting, what it would have looked like. I think that's his wife on the front. He's got kind of those strange eyes. Got those hands out there. All right, we'll stop there and we'll finish Edwards next week. And then we're going to talk about the second Great Awakening, which has very little to do with the first and isn't even similar. And it's where we get, you got to be here next time for the second Great Awakening because it's where we get a lot of our bad theology and bad evangelism today and bad preaching and even some heretical doctrine and all these groups split off like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Church of Christ, all of these groups just split off from the evangelical movement at that time. So next week we'll cover that. Jonathan Edwards is great. We do have some of these works in his in the bookstore, which I'll talk more about next week, but just to give you an idea here, recommended resources. Religious Affections is good. If you want to read Freedom of the Will, that's a little more challenging. We'll look at that next week. And the kids book there on Edwards studying a spider. Let's pray. Lord, let us preach and proclaim and be as excited about the gospel as Jonathan Edwards was. He was not concerned about what man thought, but he preached knowing that people would come to faith through the gospel. And help us to do that, Lord, when we talk to believers. Let us model that. Let us remind them of the coming judgment in hell and not be scared that we might lose a friend or lose the support of someone. But let us tell the truth and do so with love. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.